Bo from Redeemer in the City on the east side. Pastor Mark will be speaking on Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without a fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. I Actually, a couple nights ago, I had food poisoning. And yesterday, I was kind of spending all day just recovering from that. And I, I wish I could say otherwise, but I am uniquely qualified to give this sermon on complaining. Because I hate to say it, but yesterday, I was asking God, why, why me? Right? Why, why this time? Why me? Yeah, just food poisoning. You know, talk about lack of perspective, right? Um, but I feel much better today. Pam, thanks for your prayers, wherever you are. Uh, but I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, just a quick little two seconds on myself. So I um, lived in Jersey City with my wife about 10 years ago, and so Hoboken to me feels like home. And so in some ways, it feels like I'm coming back home a little bit. And I, I miss the views of the expansive New York skyline, the Hudson, uh, I unfortunately uh, didn't bring my three boys with me this morning. Uh, it was a little chaotic, and so they just kind of went to our church on the east side. Um, but it, again, it's great to be here with you all. So today's sermon is on grumbling, on complaining. But before I dive into kind of the main core of the text, just a little background on the chapter that Andrew just read. Earlier on in chapter 2, you might be familiar with it, but it talks about Christ's matchless humility, where he was the eternal son of God, and he condescended to a form of an infant, a human being, came into the world humbly submitting himself to death, a humiliating death on the cross. And it's in light of this world-altering event, this life-changing, world-changing event, the climactic event of Jesus' death and suffering on the cross. It's in light of that that we're now to think about the implications of that kind of work, that salvific achievement on the cross. And that brings us to our current chapter now. And in verses 12 and 13, the first thing that it tells us is to work out your salvation. Work out the implications of this salvation in your lives because it is, in fact, God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And when you think about that verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It sounds so paradoxical and contradictory. Which one is it? Is it God who's working in us or are we the ones who are willing and acting according to his good purpose? Well, the answer to that question, it's, it's actually both. And there's a pastor who is out in L.A. 
a Presbyterian pastor who, to explain, to explain this, uses the analogy of a sailboat, where a sailboat, if it's sitting there in the water, it's powerless to do anything. It can't move, right? It needs the power of the wind to move it across the water. But the sailboat can't just sit there in the boat expecting to win just to lift it up, moving it across. It's got to lift up the, the, the sails, right? It needs to do something to lift up the sails and then to catch the wind, and the wind will eventually take it across the water. And so it is with our personal growth. As we work out the implications of the salvation, we also, for Christians, we also have to do something about that. We can't just sit idly by waiting for God's Spirit to do something in our lives. We have to take advantage of things like spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines, other means of grace that God instituted to work spiritual growth into our lives. That really is the essence of what it means to grow in the Christian life. And right after that key summary, that key summary of what it means to grow in the Christian life, that fundamental concept of Christian growth, right after that, the Apostle Paul says, don't grumble and complain. And it, it feels a little odd to me that he would say don't grumble and complain, because I would imagine after such a climactic summary of the Christian faith, I would imagine him to say something like, you know, get plugged into a church, uh, meet Christian friends who can help you in your walk, read the Bible every day, avoid catastrophic moral failure, reflect on the beauty of the gospel, which are all important things. But he singles out complaining as the obstacle that can derail your growth and maturity in the faith. And this is because Paul knows his biblical history. He knows that the one sin that derailed ancient Israel was the sin of grumbling. And this is what he alludes to in verse 15 of Philippians 2. When the Apostle Paul says the warped and crooked generation, he's referring back to the ancient Israelites. They're described in that same way. They're referred to as a crooked generation because of their constant complaining and bickering. And Paul is basically using them as a negative example to us now, basically saying don't do what they did. Avoid the outcome of their lives. You see, we're not much different from them. I mean, one, one commute on the PATH train or the MTA would wake you up to the reality that grumbling is the one thing that unites all New Yorkers and New Jerseyans, right? We're not much different than ancient Israel. We've experienced something that's far greater than what they experienced. They ex experienced the miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea, the exodus, being freed from Egyptian slavery. And for us, for the Christian We've seen Jesus come down from heaven, suffer and die on the cross, something far greater than the Exodus, what in fact the Exodus was pointing to. And yet, ye, yet we, just like the Israelites, we can't help but to grumble and complain. Just two quick points for today. One, what's so bad about grumbling and complaining? And two, how do we then overcome? So one, what's, what is it that's so bad about grumbling? It feels so innocuous. We're not really harming anyone by grumbling. We're just venting our frustrations inside. We're, we're not really harming people, are we? I mean, if, what, what does it matter to God? I mean, we're not really harming Him either. Last, I think it was last February, my wife and I, we were visiting some family in Los Angeles, and we 
decided to treat our three young boys to a day at Legoland. How, have any of you been to Legoland out in California? Okay, just a few of you. It is, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced before growing up. I, you know, our version of family vacations was taking a trip, you know, 30 minutes to like a local uh, pond and like riding a canoe and a paddle boat and things like that. And that was our version of like a family vacation. So by taking my boys to Legoland, I, I thought they were in for something unlike anything we've ever experienced growing up. And I thought they would be so thankful and gracious and just praising me and my wife. Thank you so much for this wonderful experience of Legoland. But in fact, what happened that day was completely the opposite. We showed up to Legoland, and the first thing that they were doing is complaining about how hot it was. Dad, you know, it's 80 degrees outside. It's so hot. Why did you bring us to Legoland? You know, in my mind, I was thinking, are you serious right now? I... I wanted to kill them, right? I was just, I was so angry that they were complaining about going to Legoland, the best, would have been the best vacation of their lives, and they were complaining. And the reason why I was so angry is because it was a direct affront to our generosity and our goodness, right? It wasn't that they were just complaining in general. They were directly questioning my ability to provide for them. They were questioning my goodness in being able to do something that I knew would be extremely fun for them. They were questioning my competence, right? And at the heart of grumbling, at the heart of grumbling is ingratitude. And ingratitude is more than just passivity. It's also a direct affront to God's goodness and God's sovereignty. It's a direct affront to his lordship. One of my seminary professors, a biblical scholar, says this. He, he analyzed the entire theme of ingratitude in the entire Bible, and he basically comes to this conclusion. He says, To be ungrateful is not simply a state of harmless absent-mindedness. It is the failure to acknowledge God as the creator and Lord of all. And what slowly starts to happen over time is startling. In the Bible, when you read Romans, Romans is maybe the most systematic treatment of the gospel in all the Bible. And in the first part of Romans, in the first chapter especially, it talks about the downward spiral of humanity. And what's startling is that it basically says that the essence of this downward spiral, the essence of it is wrapped up in the characteristic of ingratitude. An affront to God's lordship and his creation of all things. And in Romans chapter 1, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. In all the Bible's commands to glorify him, in one sense, ingratitude is the direct opposite, right? It's a failure to Give glory to God as he is due. And as we continue to go on grumbling and grumbling, God may just let us do that. He may give us over to that grumbling and complaining and to devastating effect. In the author C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he tells a story of a bus full of people being transported out of hell and taken up into heaven. And basically... 
this bu- uh, bus full of people, they arrive at heaven, and all the residents of heaven are basically pleading with them, you know, let go of what you're holding on to down in hell. It's not great. Look at all that we have up here in heaven. Let go of those things and come on over to this side and join us where there is joy forevermore and more, more peace and all the other great things about being in the presence of God that you could ever experience, that you could ever imagine. Come, let go of those things. But they can't. They can't let go. And Lewis goes on to describe these people from hell. And the way that he describes them is that they are grumblers who deform and are dehumanized so that there's nothing human left about them except for the grumbling itself. They can't let go of the things in hell because of the grumbling posture that they have towards life. And Lewis says this in his book, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you all have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. You see, what starts off as an isolated grumble, when it's left unchecked, begins to devolve us, stripping us of our very humanity until what's left is just the grumble itself going on forever and forever like a machine. And so that was the first question, what's so bad about grumbling? Again, it's a direct affront to God's goodness and his lordship, his sovereignty. Well, the second question I wanted to ask is, well, then how do we overcome grumbling? And if you look in our passage, and again, Philippians 2 Verse 16, it says, hold firmly to the word of life. Basically, hold fast to the reality of the gospel. Hold fast to the reality of the cross. It's what's enabled Paul to be glad and rejoice even when he was being poured out like a drink offering. There's a remarkable story of a man named Eric Little who was the person featured in the movie Chariots of Fire. He was a Christian Olympian. He competed in the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris. And he was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. But because of his Christian convictions of setting apart the Sabbath, making it holy, ceasing from work, again, for him, work is running, he decided not to compete in one of the qualifying races for the 100-meter dash And eventually, that disqualified him. So here was the favorite to win the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics. He was a a Scotsman. And he, because of his convictions, decided to forego it. He had it in the bag, but he decided to forego it. And the movie tells the story of that process. And eventually, what's so staggering about that story is that eventually, he, Eric Little, goes on to run a different event. It's not his main event. It's the 400-meter dash. And he goes on to win gold in the 400-meter dash. It's a remarkable story. I ran track for a few years in high school, and perhaps if you've run track or if you follow the Olympics, the 100-meter dash is a completely different race than the 400-meter dash. It requires a different skill set, different pacing, different levels of endurance. It activates different muscles in your body. It's a completely different race. So the fact that he won that is pretty remarkable. But the reason why I bring up Eric Little is not because of his success in the Olympics or the movie Chariots of Fire. What's 
What's most remarkable to me about Eric Little's life is what happened after the movie, after the events of the movie. And it's not a well-known story. But Eric Little, he grew up in a family of missionaries in China. And after his Olympic career, he decided he wanted to go back to China and serve as a missionary there. And this is during World War II when uh, Japan was occupying China. And what they did was they put all uh, foreigners into an internment camp. And so Eric Little eventually ended up in an internment camp in China. He was separated from his wife and his three young daughters who were on the other side of the world. But Little, when he was there at that internment camp, he basically every day just decided to live for every other person who was in that camp. He poured out his life for everyone in the camp, especially the children. He would run youth programs and uh, do sports events, all for the kids there, many of whom were also orphaned from their own parents as well. And over time in this camp, I mean, I, I can't even imagine the conditions there, but there were lines to use the bathrooms, and the bathrooms themselves were in terrible conditions. They were all you know, squeezed into tight living quarters, uh, barely being able to move and roll over because things were so tight. And the people started to steal from each other. People started to hoard all their resources because of how limited food was and snacks and drinks and all those things. People just started to hoard. And there's a theologian, his name is Langdon Gilkey, who was teaching at the time. He was also interned at that camp. And what theologian Gilkey noticed was that even the Christian missionaries and pastors were no different than every other resident in that internment camp. They were also stealing, hoarding resources, sometimes uh, just as selfishly as all the others in that camp. And Gilkey, who at the time held to some progressive ideas about human progress, and the innate goodness of humanity, all those ideas that he went into with in the camp were shattered because of the, the brokenness that he saw there, the, the innate selfishness that he saw there, completely shattered his ideas about human progress. But he noticed one person in that camp who was different, and that person was Eric Little. And he says this about Little. Often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat, or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known." Everyone in that camp was grumbling, complaining about something, except for Eric Little. He was like the stars that verse 15 in our passage talks about. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. When Eric Little unexpectedly died in that camp from an undiagnosed brain tumor, the entire camp was stunned for days especially the children there who looked up to him so much and loved being with him. And this is what happens when we rejoice and when we pour ourselves out for others in a world around us that grumbles and complains. We shine like the stars in the sky. And Eric Little, the Apostle Paul, and of course, others who live in a similar way, all of them took their cues from the Lord Jesus Christ who 
literally poured himself out on the cross, shedding his blood for those who wouldn't give him the time of day. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says this about Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, Jesus suffered for most of his life. He went to the cross to save us. And not once did he complain, not once did he grumble, but it was out of the joy that he went to the cross. It was for the joy that was set before him that he literally poured out his blood for you and for me. It was his love for us that fueled him until the end. And that love that he held is also the same love that fuels us every day. Jesus died for our grumbling by keeping him free, himself free from grumbling. And now we can also rejoice knowing that when we fail, when we do grumble, and it will inevitably happen, when we grumble and complain, we are not condemned. And because of this, we can be glad and rejoice just like the Apostle Paul in this passage. And when we do this, we will shine like the stars in the dark sky, lighting up this dark world with the light of Jesus Christ. And the darkness shall not overcome. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that often it's just our default nature to complain and to wonder why we experience certain things and to long for something that's better. God, help us to look to your Son, Jesus, who came into this world, lived a life full of suffering, humbled himself to a humiliating death on the cross, and all of that he did out of love for us, for the joy that was set before him. And God, give us that kind of fuel. Give us the resources to be able to overcome our grumbling, to be able to be transformed from the inside out, from people who complain to people who rejoice because of what we have in your Son. Help us to pour ourselves out, fueled by the love that you so generously have given us. Help us to pour ourselves out, just like the Apostle Paul, just like Eric Little, so that we can be like the stars in the dark sky, in a world full of people who grumble and complain, that we would be stars lighting up the sky, and that people would see the love that fuels us, and they would also want to taste and see that kind of love as well. God, be with Redeemer Hoboken. Help them to see the beauty of the cross. Give them the fuel that they need to live as a light in this dark world. God, we pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.